Hi, my name's John Kasher and welcome to Cash Talk, where there'll be no boundaries and a lot of straight talk. All things money, business, and just everyday stuff. Hey guys, before we get started, just a quick reminder that all the information in this podcast is of a general nature and not tailored to your personal circumstances. So please seek personal financial advice before acting on this information. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Cash Talk. Today, I'm joined by Chief Economist of BetaShares, David Bassanese. We'll be unpacking the current state of the economy and how it is affected, how it is affecting investments. Now, for those unfamiliar with David or haven't seen him uh, with me before, uh, David is responsible for developing the economic insights and portfolio construction strategies for advisors and retail clients, or essentially mums and dads. Okay. Uh, prior to BetaShares, David was an economic, uh, economic columnist in the AFR magazine uh, or AFR uh, articles over the last decade or over a decade. Uh, prior to AFR, David spent several years in financial markets as a senior economist and interest rate strategist at BT and Macquarie Bank. He started his career in the Commonwealth Treasury uh, as a Commonwealth Treasury official, uh, after which he spent three years in, uh, as a research economist for the OECD uh, in Paris and France. I might have to speak to him about that one. Uh, David is the author of two online investment books, including Australia's most comprehensive book uh, on local ETF market. He graduated with first class honours at the University of Adelaide and a master in public policy and uh, from the JFK School of Government at Harvard University. David, thank you very much for joining me again today. Good to be with you, John, and uh, happy uh, 2022 to you and all your listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so, mate, before I get into everything, you're going to have to speak to me. How was your time over in uh, over in Paris and in, in France with the OECD? Yeah, no, it was good. I spent three years there. It was, uh, it was a, look, it was a, an exchange program that I was at. They, they used to have an exchange program with the Treasury Department in Canberra. So they'd send mm -hmm. a, like a young, a young uh, gun economist, I mm -hmm. guess you'd call them or something. Mm -hmm. But Problem is they never tended to come back because the OECD would offer them jobs. And so same with me. I, After a year there, I, I stayed on a, a, in the role. So, um, yeah, it was a good few years um, and uh, enjoyed it. But, uh, yeah, I, I realized that I didn't want to spend my whole life there. I had other things to do, so I did leave after a while. Yeah, no, that's it. That's it. It's, it's very interesting, you know, being abroad, obviously, as well, too. You know, you've studied yeah. at, at Harvard University and, and you know, there's a bit of a kit bag as well, too, in regards to, you know, public policy and stuff like that, which we're obviously going to go a bit in today around, you know, uh, fiscal yeah. and monetary policy as well, too, um, which is a bit of a bit of a topic now. But listen, listeners, before we get into the viewers, before we get into it, we just want to make sure that everything that we're talking about, just a bit of a reminder, is general information only. And we haven't taken your personal circumstances into consideration. So please, before doing anything, please go seek personal uh, professional personal financial advice, okay, that's tailored to your needs, okay? Um, so before we get started into the money stuff, I just want to know, Dave, I've known you for a little bit, but I've never asked you this. How did you get into the world of investments? Like, where did it all start for you? Well, I mean, I studied economics at at, at, uh, at school, and so I, um, you know, did economics at uni. So I started as an economist and you know, initially, you know, with a public policy point of view. So I started at Treasury and was doing public policy. And, um, you know, then I discovered financial markets because many of my friends were moving to the merchant banking, as it was called back in the day, mm -hmm. in Sydney. So people were leaving Canberra to go and work uh, 
as economists in the financial markets, trying to second guess what the Reserve Bank was doing with interest rates. Uh, some became fund managers. And so um, that's eventually sort of down the path I went. You know, it's, it's a, you know, working in markets can be exciting and um, it's obviously, you know, fairly, you know, reasonably well paid, better than public service. Though the public service these days, they do, they, they are a lot better paid than they were when I first started. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but that's, you know, how I got into it. I got into beta shares because I, I really I liked exchange-traded funds when I discovered mm-hmm. what they were because um, they allow for sort of macro type of investing, you know, top-down <laughs> investing rather than bottom-up investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, one thing led to another and um, I saw the potential of them in Australia and um, so that's why, you know, I kind of, yeah, came to an arrangement with BetaShares to come and work with uh, BetaShares to uh, help uh, promote their company and, and the products generally. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And it, it, it's obviously been a journey. It's, it's great to see so many skill sets being used in different areas, which is amazing, mm. Dave. Now, there's a lot going on in the world of investments at, at the moment, okay? And what I really wanted to pick your brain, and as you can see for mm. listeners and viewers, I'm trying to get the best person in the job to unpack this. Inflation. You know, I think even clients at the moment now know what inflation was. I used to have to explain to them what it is, but in the headlines, it's inflation, inflation. And only yesterday, a client sent me a a picture of, he got a coffee, I think it was like last week, and it was $4.50, and it's now $5.50. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so he's he's feeling feeling (laughs) the pinch. Yeah, he's feeling the pinch. But, you know, let's talk about, you know, inflation, okay? Mm. And there's obviously talk around... You know, central banks across the world, RBA, US. Mm. One is maybe when it's likely to happen, but also like what do we see, you know, what do we see it playing out like? And maybe if we can just like what are the concerns? Because obviously these Mm. concerns about inflation are both at the domestic level or at the home Mm. level, but there's also at the institution level and at the fund level where they're just like, you can see on equity markets, it's, it's, it's really creating volatility. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of you've got to unpack what's driving inflation. So there's a few things. Now, first and foremost, basically COVID, COVID was, you know, COVID was a supply and a demand shock. So it was a negative supply shock because different countries had to close down at different times. So it disrupted production, disrupted factories, you know, disrupted China and Asia, which are, you know, the factories of the world. Uh, at the same time, it disrupted employment and people lost their jobs and governments responded to that and central banks by giving them an enormous fiscal stimulus, you know, money in your back pocket, slashed interest rates. And so funnily enough, through COVID, we had a surge in demand, like a surge in phys- good demand for goods also, because a lot of uh, services were shut down, you know, travel, restaurants, these sort of things. So people stuck at home bought a lot of stuff on Amazon, a lot of it that needed to come through through factories in Asia, and that supply-demand, you know, choke point, if you like, led to inflation going up. So that's what's happened. It's been a, a surge in demand coupled with production bottlenecks that have caused inflation to go up. Now, that part in and of itself, uh, it should moderate, you know. So basically, that fiscal stimulus, that monetary stimulus, you talked about central banks mm-hmm. raising rates, that is starting to wind down and goods demand is, is, is faultless. Consumer demand is slowing and also the switch back into services as we open uh, the economy. And, you know, Asian factories are starting to open up again. So those sort of bottlenecks, generally speaking, should ease. And so the high inflation rates that we see 
You know, in the US, it's running at 7%. You know, headline inflation is at 7%. Here, it's only around 3% or so. Uh, so we don't know. Our problem is not as bad as it is in the US. Um, but so that should ease and help buy the central banks raise. And that's, you know, we can touch on this in a minute. But one yeah. of the things central banks are doing is, you know, they slashed rates to zero, but now they're saying, you know, we don't, the emergency's passed. We've got to, uh, we've got to make sure the economy does slow. We've got to make sure that this inflation that we're getting isn't embedded into inflation expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, if people expect inflation to be 4%, they're going to start demanding wage rises of, mm. you know, 4 5%, and that's how mm. it gets embedded. Uh, mm. And that's how it got embedded going back to the 1970s when it had an oil price shock. Mm. Um, now... It's very interesting. That, it's very yeah. interesting just on that point that you were saying before yeah. we continue. So yeah. COVID has caused this kind of you know, this, this shock to the system. Let's talk about yeah. it. Governments have stepped in. They've pumped all of this money in. Like I kind of put yeah. it, they've, if they're the bank at the monopoly, they've just thrown it all on the table, yeah, to kind of make yeah. it still the, the wheel go round. Yeah. But that's obviously shot up this inflation and all of mm. this demand. But we're talking about this now kind of normalising. So you've got this like massive deflationary period that's kind of sudden, yeah, which is this mm. slowdown of the economy due to COVID and all the lockdowns. Mm. And then you've yeah. got this speed back up so is there this anticipation that this inflation is short-lived, that it's really just this kind of, it's a lump period? Or could it could it keep going? Obviously, anything could happen. Mm. But is that what we're more thinking, that it will get back to a bit like normalised levels? Uh, yeah, so that, so, well, I mean, that again, that's come. So the thing about it is that the, the, the hit to the supply, the supply-demand imbalance that we've been dealing with, the disruptions of COVID, those should ease. But the two ways in which inflation should could linger is that again, if it's embedded into expectations, um, so, you know, the longer, and so the, like this time last year, we anticipated inflation would pick up. And I'm talking about the US in particular mm -hmm. here, but it's also true in Europe. What happened is we, could, we did get that inflation pick up. It was a lot more than expected and it's lasted a lot longer than expected. So, but it, the, the causes of it are the same thing. It's still the supply demand imbalances, which should moderate. It's just been a bigger hit and it's lasted longer. And so central banks have lost patience in the in the idea that it's going to be temporary. They want to just make sure it is, you know, it doesn't last for another year, for example. They want to see it to moderate. So I think in that, so that that should moderate um, because central banks are going to, you know, raise rates and, and ensure that growth does slow to a degree. The lingering problem, and the last point I was going to mention, is we are left with tight labour markets in many countries Um particularly, again, the U.S. So the labor market, U.S. unemployment rate is 3.9%. Wages growth are growing at 4 to 5%. So that is high. And that's um, if it stays that way, the central bank may need to raise rates, you know, quite aggressively and actually slow growth, you know, more than just a gentle slowdown, which is what everyone's hoping for. So that's the lingering concern. But again, it's not that inflation will persist because central banks will kill it one way or the other. But what we don't, you know, ideally they kill it, you know, it's a, the, the, the medicine is not too harsh. But I think inflation will ultimately moderate because central banks will insist on it. But uh, we hopefully that the medicine they need to, you know, yeah. uh, provide to the economy, it, it won't, won't kill the patient in the short run. Yeah, and it's, it's this type like very, very sick. Yeah. Yeah, and I was speaking to another one, uh, another um, uh, another person just recently, and we were just talking mm. about this, just getting the timing right. And I think this is where like the equity markets are kind of just like so nervous as well. It's just like yeah. if they go too soon, are they pulling it too soon? Are they going too yeah. late? And this kind of uncertainty is causing what's going on. Yes. And 
And so, you know, when we talk about now the flow, and it was great that you kind of gave us the insight about how the central banks are kind of thinking and whatnot, but then the flow on to like the equity markets. Mm. Obviously, you know, we're mm. very leveraged in both, well, we'll go into the property market as well, but the equity yeah. market and the property market. And it's just like, mm. when we take it down, really, we can also even talk about crypto market as well too. It's just, there's so much kind of debt circling around and cheap money that soon mm. as we're hearing these kind of interest rates going up and we're hearing banks, like we're talking like the big banks, you know, increasing their fixed term, their fixed rate home loans. And yep. so people are anticipating these interest rates to go up. Do you see the volatility that's happening in these asset classes nearly closely directly linked to what's going on at the moment? And if so, yeah, how is mm. this turning out in the short to medium term? Yeah, so look, the first round of, so basically bond yields, you know, bond yields have been low for a long time and what that's done is allowed equity valuations like price to earnings valuations to go up. So the equity market is expensive on a, on a price to earnings basis simply because interest rates are so low and people have been forced to invest in the equity market. Now, as interest rates go up, that PE value, so again, in the US, the PE is at 20 uh, the long run, the average since about 2013 has been about 17 and a half. So it's still a little bit above, somewhat above its its longer run average. And if you go back 10, 20 years, it was it's been 15. So the fact it's at 20 is still pretty high. Um, so what the first? So there's two stages to this. The first stage is interest rates going up, putting downward pressure on PE ratios, which is what's happening at the moment. The second stage, uh, and the stage we hope we don't get into, is where interest rates actually slow the economy by enough that we also see earnings falling. Because at the moment, earnings are still growing pretty nicely. So all we're seeing at the moment is what I call a, a valuation-led correction in the equity market. It'll get, it can get worse if we also get an economic slowdown, earnings slowdown, um, and that's then the next leg of the you know, potential equity market correction. So talking about a delicate balance, I think what they're trying to do is have a, a, a soft landing, you know, quote unquote, for the economy, um, such that you know, valuations come off, but earnings aren't, too, uh, aren't hurt too badly. Um, I think at the end of the day, we've probably still got a bit more downside to come. Like at the bottom of the market of the US uh, a week or so ago it was a 10% correction. Um, I probably I wouldn't be surprised if it can as bad as maybe even fifteen, possibly twenty percent uh, fall. Um, but barring the U.S. tipping into recession, which again I, I can't yeah. see happening anytime soon, it should be limited to something like that. But uh, that's yeah. you know as far as my crystal ball can extend, yeah. that's sort of what I'm suspecting at the moment is is going to happen. Yeah, and I think I think you hit the nail on the head. Like we don't want to get caught up in the whole kind of crystal balling scenario, and and we're trying to work with the facts that we've got and what's presented with yeah. us and what's showing showing in front of us. And I think that you know this volatility, like we can see, is very much about these decisions that are being being made. And and the market is very very good of picking up on bad news. Um, you know, yeah. on on good news, yep, it'll fly. That's cool. Yeah, but on bad news, it shivers. You know, and it really kind of gets to the bottom. But one thing where we're we're, we're we're experiencing locally now because of this mm. kind of interest rate is that, you know, I've been personally in the property market for close enough to a decade myself personally. Um, and I haven't experienced interest rate rises. I think there might've been one along the <laughs> way. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean, Dave? Like this yeah, personally, yeah, yeah. obviously I'm, sure. you know, I'm trained and, you know, educated mm. a lot in it. But if you think about that, you've got a, 
you know, you've got first home buyers, you've got maybe mm. potentially second home buyers, you've got young families who haven't really experienced an interest rate rise and maybe don't have good cash, you know, cash at mm. bank, you know, they're not prepared yeah. for these interest rate rises. And so when there's talk about it, mm. we're also starting to see for the first time, I think it was in Sydney and Melbourne, or we're not in the first time in a long time, Capital City is starting to get flat in regards to their data, in regards to home valuations. Yeah, yeah. you're starting to see some heat coming out of the market. So, yeah. you know, what's what's the thoughts around you know the local economy in regards to like property and stuff like that? Is it a is it a, is it a big concern because we, there is a lot of debt floating around? Look, yes and no. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, I think the RBA hasn't raised interest rates in about 10 years. So, you know, it's been 10 years. It's been a one-way train since uh, uh, for over the past 10 years. Um, it's been quite extraordinary. Yeah, since the GFC, basically, mm -hmm. the, the initial rate increases in interest rates after they slashed rates during the, you know, the, the global financial crisis, which is, um, you know, getting on now um, mm -hmm. some time ago. Um, now, so what – so – what what ha what happens now? So they slash rates, yes. So we had an almighty housing boom. In fact, I wrote a blog early last mm. year saying house prices were going to take off, mm. um, and you know, other I didn't put a number on it. Some people mm. put numbers on it, but mm. I, I did anticipate you know ten twenty percent mm. sort of growth, and you know, I think we, it was closer to twenty percent. Mm. Mm. Uh, but it just shows you that we house prices these days are very sensitive to interest rates, and it's because uh, what happens is. You know, when we when when the Reserve Bank cuts interest rates, people don't say, oh, "Oh, I can I can now don't have to spend as much on a mortgage. I can go and buy a house and like you know buy a better car." They just mean, "Oh, it means I can spend even more on a house." And so everyone goes out to the auction uh, and bids up to their maximum capacity to pay off a mortgage, um, and that's why it's the marginal affordability of a property that's driving prices. And so again, so when interest rates go down prices go up and vice versa. So, you know, I would anticipate as interest rates go up, you know, presume depending on how far and how fast, I don't think they'll go up mm -hmm. rapidly because, again, we don't have an interest rate inflation problem to the extent other countries do. So I'd anticipate the RBA may raise rates four times over a year. So we go from mm -hmm. close to zero to maybe one, mm -hmm. and then over the next year maybe up to one and a half, and we'll see what happens thereafter. But that's still 1.5%. Um, and I reckon house prices will come off, you know, in nominal terms, maybe, you know, 5%, 10%. Again, some mm. are saying a crash, but mm. um, I can't see a crash, um, you know, unless there's, uh, again, it's associated with a, with a downturn in the economy. But um, mm. if that's the case, then the Reserve Bank will turn around and cut interest rates again. So yeah. it, it's, it's, just, it's just an interesting, it's just an interesting thing. Like for listeners yeah. and viewers out there, you can kind of see how much this one kind of lever yeah, with the central yeah. bank's card is just just sends ricochets across them all. Yeah, um, you know yeah. we can talk into like crypto and stuff like that, and this is a very similar scenario. Just mm. the sensitivity, yeah, of yeah. of interest rates, and and for you know the listeners and viewers out there, I think the biggest thing is to always remember um, we've had it good for a long time, and so mm. it probably like has some tips is to just making sure that there's you know cash available. You know, anticipate for things to potentially go up. You know, it can't be roses yeah. forever. Yeah. And so, you know, just yeah. better preparing yourself. And if you don't feel comfortable, go seek financial advice to help you build those things and make sure that your assets are allocated correctly um, as mm. well to, to accommodate. Because, you know, Dave, as we know, there's a lot of asset classes that do love inflation. So we have talked about, mm. for example, some things that are sensitive. 
but there's also assets that like inflation, okay? Mm. Um, and so, you know, we don't have time today to go into it, but making sure that, you know, when we're structuring portfolios, we're not just structuring them in asset classes on the downturn in, in regards to inflation, uh, in, sorry, interest rate going down. When inflation, yeah. when in interest rates go up or in intra, inflation goes up, there's good recipients on the other side. Um, and yeah, so, exactly. you know, at beta shares, you do this all the time. And so do we in regards to making sure that portfolios are adjusted correctly uh, for these circumstances. Now, the other two things that I just wanted to, to, to have a bit of a, a, a chat about, and this is more uh, international news at the moment. One is around this lingering kind of Chinese property issue, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, late last year, it was really kind of front page headlines about, you know, Evergrande. Um, but, you know, diving deeper, it sounds like there's a lot going on. Um, mm. I can't remember off the top of my head around the, the biggest property development, Garden, um, what is it? Um, anyway, one of the, anyway, Evergrande is the second, they're the biggest yeah, one. But yeah. they were talking around, you know, even them being unstable. What's yeah. BetaShare's view in regards to this lingering property issue in, in China? Is it is it bigger? Should we be more concerned than what most people are? Like, you know, word on the street is mm. at the moment, there's no word on the street. And I just, the more I'm very looking quiet. at it, it's very yeah. quiet about it. Yeah, look, what I I think what, I mean, yeah, you don't get a lot of uh, clarity in, in China about what's going on. Things are, A lot of things are going on behind closed doors and obviously the media there aren't as... Um, you know, are able to report about things to to the extent you would you would get, say, in Australia or the United States. So, not a lot of clarity in terms of what's going on. But what I what I what what we think we're happy we're seeing is that the you know there's been a lot of rationalisation and um, like um, you know good you know more profitable property developers trying to take over the unprofitable ones to keep projects going. Um, and um, and and containing the debt uh, the, the debt fallout. Um, I think the you know the yes, there's a lot of property developers that racked up a lot of debt, um, mm -hmm. and to the extent that then they can't sell their properties, um, or you know, and and people basically balk at you know, committing to to buy the properties. Ultimately, um, you're seeing you know banks um, they're just um, doing debt. Debt, you know, rescheduling with the banks, and again, the, the, they've borrowed money from state-owned banks, so the government mm -hmm. can sort of, you know, get the banks to sort of do what needs to be done to sort of stop things blowing up. So, so that I think, you know, they're slowly, you know, in their in the Chinese way, you know, dealing with it um, piecemeal, gradually, you know, mm -hmm. uh, putting the finger in the dike when the, when mm -hmm. something leaks, and uh, mm -hmm. hopefully the thing doesn't implode. So. I, I'm, I don't think China is going to – I'm more concerned about the US and wage inflation and interest mm -hmm. rates uh, than I am mm -hmm. about China being a source of major risk to global markets. Yeah. Um, but I think and this, gonna, and this is ultimately yeah. what we're talking about, Dave. And this is, uh, this is yeah. where I'm going about it. The, yeah. the, the talk from some areas is that this is the one that will bring it all down, yeah? And well, there's so been that talk for a long time, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And maybe and one day it will happen, but, yeah, it's hard to – yeah. It's hard to predict, but it's just like this big situation and because of this kind of world of secrecy and it's obviously a land of unknown, there's a lot yeah. of unknowns in the unknown at the moment, yeah? yeah, in, yeah. Just to paint it in, I was reading the other yeah. day that the number of empty buildings, just to put it in perspective, yeah. was 27 times what's in Manhattan. Right, yeah. So we've got to think about it. It's a huge thing. But in perspective, and this is for the <coughs> viewers, you've got to remember yeah. 
You've also got 1.4 billion people or whatever it is, yeah, with mm. a large portion of them coming out of like farms and stuff like that and are starting to be urbanized, yeah? And yes. I've been to China, Dave, I'm not sure if you've been there yourself, um, but I have been fortunate. Yeah. And I know that the way that they run their stuff is when they build a freeway, yeah, they don't build it two lanes first and then three lanes and five lanes like in Melbourne and Sydney and then you've always got this congestion going on. They build yeah. eight lanes first, yeah, wait for the traffic yeah. to come, yeah, which will be in 20 or 50 or 25 years later. And so when it came to this building philosophy, it's very much similar to that. They know that in a decade's time or in 15 years' time or 20 years' time, You've got a big yeah. chunk, of the, chunk of this population that's being urbanized, yeah? yeah so exactly. they need to be housed. So yeah. we've got to be, I know there's a lot of stuff and remember people are trying to sell papers here and magazines and whatever mm. it is and news based on greed and fear, okay? Yeah. It's also when I take a step back and I look at the situation, I also look at it from a planning perspective. Yeah, mm. they're also planning for these people to come in. Yeah, yeah. Um, that come into the come in there. So, you know, it's going to be an interesting situation. But the kind mm. of building requirements or call it supply and demand. Yeah, there's a yeah. crap load of demand when you think about how many people are actually going from the houses and huts. Yeah, into urbanized living. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And, you know, it's a, it's a massive country with a huge population. So, you know, the number of times the, you know, that sounds a lot by Manhattan standards, but as you said, like you've got to build, uh, you've got to, you know, all, all buildings are empty once they've built um, and then, you know, you fill them up, but uh, and depending on the speed in which that happens. But, um, you know, we've been hearing these stories about, you know, ghost towns, empty towns that have been built, but they've all managed generally to, to um, you know, get filled up eventually. People are buying, you know, buying off the plan, essentially. That's the way a lot of these things work. Um, and, you know, ultimately for Australia, you look at iron ore demand, it's still going through the roof. So, you know, they, as long as they keep uh, demanding iron ore, um, you know, it's happy days for Australia in terms of that relationship. That's it. We hopefully that 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 relationship gets a little bit better uh, because over the last bit it's been a little bit tension, uh, a little bit of tension. And talking about tension, well, I can't help myself but think that Vladimir Putin just likes to stir the pot, yeah. Um, but the reality mm. is, is that we're now got a situation where Russia is at the border borders of the Ukraine from all yeah. all news reports and. Uh, for a little bit of interesting facts, when the uh, Soviet Union kind of got um, you know, after the Cold War kind of got separated, uh, Joe Biden was actually the guy who kind of got the Ukraine and everyone into NATO. Okay, so this is why I say that I feel like Vladimir Putin's like poking at everything and stirring the pot because obviously Joe Ooh. Biden happens to be the president now. But in yeah. saying this, Joe Biden's kind of coming out pretty interestingly saying, you know, we're here to back the you know Ukraine and we'll be there to support NATO and all of that stuff. And um, yeah. Russia at the border. What does this mean for global markets? And, and, and you know, when we're talking about tense scenarios like this one, mm. what does this mean? And this smells a little mm. bit like North Korean issue from maybe I think it was like 2018. Uh, smells yeah. a little bit like that. What's, yeah, what's the yeah, so, I mean, these so-called geopolitical risk factors, um, they're very hard to, um, to, to get your head around from a financial point of view because... I mean, ultimately, look, if Russia, let's say, let's say Russia does invade the Ukraine, 
um, and takes over the Ukraine. I mean, in terms of the global economy, not not that much will change. I mean, there'll be a lot of sanctions imposed mm. on on Russia potentially, so the Russian economy may suffer to some extent. Uh, or the first and foremost thing that will happen in the short run is oil prices will probably go through the roof, like go even higher. <laughs> so that will add to inflationary concerns in the short run. But then you would anticipate OPEC still have spare production capacity, particularly Saudi Arabia. So if if there was a crunch uh, because of, um, for example, you know, they may ban, you know, oil exports mm. or something from Russia, mm. um, but then Saudi Arabia could open the taps. Um, mm-hmm. So funnily, a lot of these geopolitical tensions, it's, it's sort of, um, you've got to distinguish between, you know, obviously horrible and we don't want to mm-hmm. see Russia invading Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. but will it lead to a, you know, global bear market? No, yeah. you know, will it lead to some volatility on the day it happens or the week it happens? Yes, probably. But generally speaking, sell-offs due to geopolitical concerns are often buying opportunities because... Um, yes. You know, they tend to be fairly isolated, you know. They don't mm. lead to broader contagion. Um, mm. And I think, you know, US has put troops into Poland and, mm. you know, some of the other countries. I don't think it's put troops... Like, I don't think it's at the mm. border with the Ukraine. So if Russia did go into the Ukraine and, and maybe not take over the whole country mm. but take off another slice mm. of it, um, that's what I suspect. The worst-case scenario mm. is they go in and take off a slice of... Mm. of it where there's a lot of ethnic um, Russians, mm. mm-hmm. um, people will, you know, jump up and down, scream, mm. but then life moves on basically and, and Putin probably knows that. And this is and this is the yeah, and this is the thing. So we just gotta understand and David unpacked it very, very well. Um just like from a financial markets perspective, what's the impact? Okay. Um it's just, mm. you know, these we've got to remember that a lot of news these days is bad news. And I, I, what I mean by that is take out whatever it is. I'm not talking about the Russian and Ukraine issue. I'm just talking about news in general. Yeah. <clears throat> and a tip for me, and I've been focusing a lot on that, is trying to block out a lot of the noise when it comes to the financial stuff. Obviously, from a humanitarian yeah. perspective, we do not want war and all of this stuff. And, and it, we yeah. don't want that. But from an actual markets perspective, trying to block out that noise is very important. Mm. Which probably leads me to, mate, just... You know, I don't know, the young couple investing first and starting off or, or the young one who's getting in. You've been there for many, yeah. many years now. Dave, maybe what's some two or three tips that you could maybe give um, these people or even, you know, general investors. I'm talking about the novice yeah. investor, really. Yeah. Maybe two or three tips walking into 2022. Look, I think the in the short run, the markets are going to probably have a bit more volatility. It's probably a little bit of downside. But again, from a long-term perspective, that could be, a, you know, actually a good buying opportunity, and particularly in some of the technology areas that are being hard hit now by, by um, you know, interest rates going up. So, you know, things like um, the tech, I mean, Google, Amazon, Facebook, these sort of companies are, you know, pristine companies with very strong business models, very strong balance sheets, very good earnings. Um, and uh, to the extent they have a pullback here because of interest rates, that could be a good buying opportunity to get into some of those areas. Um, the other, I mean, this, as a, and look, and as a general rule, um, you know, again, as a, a provider of ETFs, mm-hmm. I mean, these days you don't have to, you know, if you want to pick stocks, fine, but, I mean, you can get broad diversified mm-hmm. exposure to equity markets now uh, pretty easily through... Um, various, you know, ETFs mm. that are on the market. So don't think you need to 
be a Warren Buffett and be able to pick stocks to invest in the share market. You just have to, you know, have a broad exposure to the market and um, let the market do its work um, mm. would be the, 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 the other, I guess, tip I would, I would have. Yeah, like finally, if you are a younger investor, um, take advantage of the fact that, you know, the greatest asset that you have is that you can have a long-term time horizon. Um, if you're, you know, 70 or 80, you do have mm-hmm. to be more worried about the market, you know, because whereas well, if, you, if, yeah, if you're investing gradually over time and the market has a pullback, you should actually see that as a, a cause to celebrate because you can buy more stocks at a cheaper price. <laughs> well, it's actually funny, Dave. This time factor is interesting. I feel like there's like, I'm trying to figure out what age it is where time turns from your best friend to your worst enemy. It's like, <laughs> when, does this, when does the pendulum thing? And, you know, for the yeah. younger investor, yes, time is your best friend, yeah? And this is why we try and say, you know, it's time in the market, not timing the market. And it's very important. And you bring up like Warren Buffett, you know, and, you know, there's many others like Warren Buffett, but if we just use him for an example, he actually talks about, you know, most people not stock picking, you know, not actually trying to find stocks and actually diversify and use, you know, a version of an ETF or or Mm. or an index or a fund. And, you know, um, diversification is a very, very important thing uh, when you're talking mm. about, remember we talked about before about inflation and the different kind of aspects and yeah. diversification helps to fight that as well too. Yes. I think the only other one that just came to mind before I let you go, Dave, is we've talked a bit about doom and gloom and we've, they were great mm. kind of tips that I think that they're great ones, but is there any particular sectors or particular areas that are maybe just thriving because i tend to see that there's a lot that are doing really really well yeah and then there's others Mm. that are unfortunately doing poorly is that what we're seeing in beta shares as well too are they seeing some sectors that are really kind of flying in the current environment um well look broadly speaking what we're seeing at the moment is what's called a growth to value rotation so the high flying tech companies that everyone loved last year are having a pullback because they are a Mm -hmm. bit more sensitive to interest rates and some of the unloved, beaten up value areas of the market, like global banks, uh, global um, um, energy companies, like people don't like to invest in oil companies anymore because of, um, you know, environmental concerns. But as a result, they're still pretty cheap and, and churning out good money uh, given where oil prices are. So we're seeing unloved, beaten up areas of the market like energy and uh, energy and financials uh, doing pretty good compared to the you know more glamorous google amazons and facebook's and the nasdaq index for example and um you know some of the more high even tesla you know for example so uh that's that's areas that are that are you know with from a sector point of view doing doing relatively well uh at the moment now some of these other companies you know i mentioned technology some of these companies that don't have a lot of earnings and i won't go into into Mm. specifics but um you know some companies are still you know, thriving in terms of disrupting industries and, and um, carving out niches for themselves. They may not have a lot of earnings at the moment. And they've traded at high PEs in anticipation of all this growth ahead. They are, as businesses, still thriving. Uh, yeah. It's just that they traded at such a high PE that that's now coming back to earth. So if you just look to the share price and say, oh, my goodness, uh, it's a, you know, it's a mm. failure. But no, it's just, you know, the, the market took them too far, too fast, and they're coming back down to earth. But the actual underlying disruptive technologies that they're dealing with. And I'm talking about robotics, mm. Um, mm. you know, cybersecurity, um, yep. you know, Asian technology companies, 
Um, mm-hmm. Even in, in the US, you know, um, you know, a whole manner of disruptive mm-hmm. technologies, mm-hmm. They, they're still thriving. They're just the yeah. share prices are, are coming back down to earth. Well, well said, mate. I think that I think that there's still a lot of good areas that are thriving and still doing well. And yeah. um, it's just as as things happen, um, things move and they never stay the same. And probably, Dave, while well, me and you remain in a job because nothing is ever constant. It's always moving. If it's <laughs> Something not always the, happening. That's right. always <laughs> happening. Well, Dave, once again, I would like to thank you for jumping on. Uh, listeners, hopefully uh, that was awesome. Uh, David generously uh, passes on his time to us, um, and I really do appreciate it. Dave, I'm sure I'll see you around. And for listeners, I'll see you on the next episode. And, he, and uh, yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. No worries. Okay. Bye for now. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cash Talk. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to learn more about me, jump onto my Instagram at, at thejohncasher, and you'll find me there, or at my website at www.johncasher.com.au. Thanks for listening. Cheese.